All right, good evening, everybody. Um, we are finishing up tonight, should, shouldn't take very long, uh, lesson five. So we're at the bottom of page 29. Um, this is where we left off last week. We, we went over uh, Jesus in the Old Testament. We looked at the three offices of Jesus, prophet, priest, and king. Then um, I just share with you just kind of different artwork that people have used to try and communicate that, right? With the prophet, you kind of see something to do with speaking, right? That's what the prophets do. They were the preachers. Um, with the priests, you either have the blood or you have the, the altar, the sacrifice. That was where the, the priest kind of served as the mediator for between God and his people. And then, of course, the king, right? Um, so just a way to kind of see it in, in art form. Um, so that's where we ended last week. Tonight, what we are going to pick up with uh, very briefly, and this is, this is a topic that uh, very, very large, very, very deep books have been written on. Um, this is probably some of the most challenging theology that exists when it comes to the two natures of Christ, but we're not going to do that tonight. Um, we're just going to kind of touch on it, just so that we're aware, just basically what we confess in the creed, that Jesus is true God and true man, and not just that he is but that it is necessary for Jesus to be both. So bottom of page 29 there, you see two natures. Um, some of the Old Testament selections we read earlier reveal that Jesus would be both God and man in one person. You think about a passage um, like in Isaiah where Jesus is called Emmanuel, right? And what does that name Emmanuel mean? It means God with us, right? So that when Jesus leaves heaven and comes to earth, it's not just a really, really, really good guy who's coming to hang out with us. It's not just the model example um, who comes to show us the way. It is God in the flesh, right? God has come to be with us. And think about how amazing that is, because what is our goal? What is our, um, our longing in this life as human beings, right? It is, and this is kind of what the whole lesson the whole uh, class is on, right? We're trying to find a way to be near God, to get close to God. Um, and so there's really only one of two, maybe three ways that that can happen, right? Um, either we ascend up to God, meaning we, we work our way up into heaven, we show him our worthiness, we, 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 we do enough good works, we live a worthy enough life, and then God says, okay, you can come up and be close to me. Um, or God comes down to be with us. Um, I guess you could have, maybe we meet him halfway, but I don't know what that would look like. But for argument's sake, I guess that could be. Um, and so knowing that our worthiness, our ability to, to do good works, to live such a life that would elevate ourselves into the presence of God is impossible. The only hope, the only chance there is of us ever getting near God, us being close with God, is if God says, I am going to come close to you. Um, and so this is what God does in the person of Jesus Christ, okay? So it is important for us to understand and recognize that Jesus is, not by accident, not like he's some sort of superhero, half man, half God. No, that Jesus is true God and true man in one person. This is a mystery. This is this is beyond our ability to comprehend. It's much like the Trinity. How can you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but only one God, right? And, and the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, but you don't have three gods, right? It's the same thing with Jesus. 
and his two natures. He's true God, true man, one person, not half and half, not 50-50, 100% of each. And here are some passages that show us that. John chapter 1, the very beginning of John's gospel. Um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Already that should tell us something is happening here that is beyond our comprehension. <laughs> it's either or, right? How are you with someone, and then also you are that someone? Um, I, I, I don't tell my wife, hey, I'm, I'm going with myself to the grocery store. That, that doesn't make any sense, right? Either you're going or you're going with someone else. But this is the, the mystery of the Trinity. He was with God in the beginning. So we know this word, this word who is with God in the beginning. We know this word who is God um, is he, right? So we're not just talking about God, God uses words. God speaks, right? It's, God is a verbal God. That's not what we're talking about, right? This word is an actual person. Who is it? Well, you go down to verse 14, and it becomes clear. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Um, so, so much is jam-packed into that first chapter of John's gospel um, the, you, you've got the, the touchings of the Trinity. Um, you've got this unity between the Father and the Son. You've got the incarnation of the Word becoming flesh, um, who is the one and only who's being sent from the Father. And he comes with what? And I love this. He comes not with laws like Moses. He comes not with judgment and righteous anger, which he has every right to do. He comes full of grace and truth. Right? This is who Jesus is and what he comes to bring. So true God, true man. Um, he's with God. He is God. And now he has been made flesh. Hebrews 1. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Um, he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact, exact representation of God's being. <clears throat> um, heavy stuff there, right? Um, Jesus is God. Another one, in Christ, all the fullness of the deity of, of God lives in bodily form. Okay, true God, true man. Um, the question is now, why did Jesus need to be true man? A couple of ways we're going to look at it here. Um, oh, and I already just gave you the answer there. Um, look at the first one. Why did Jesus need to be true man? Galatians chapter 4, um, it's there in your notes. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. God is not subject to his own law. We, we, make that, uh, we make that complaint about people um, in law enforcement. You'll hear that every now and then, right? Whether it's police officers or politicians, um, there, are, there are people who think they are above the law. The law doesn't apply to them, right? When it comes to God, the law really doesn't. God is not subject to his law because the law is given for lawbreakers. The law is not given to the holy. The law is not given to God. God gives the law um, to, to his creation. 
And so, um, what do we see here in Galatians chapter 4? God becomes man. He's born of a woman, which means he's human flesh, which means he's true man, which means now what? It means that he's born under the law of God. That he now has to keep it. That he now has to obey it. Um, and why does he do this? Jesus does it so that he can keep God's law perfectly, something that God commands you and me to do, which we cannot and we don't. And yet when Jesus keeps it perfectly, what does he say? He gives that status to you and me. He uses that perfect righteousness and he uses it to redeem us, to buy us back and to make us, to give us the full rights of sons. And this isn't, um, you know, full rights of sons and daughters. This isn't a male-female sexist thing. Um, the ladies who are online, the ladies who are here tonight, um, Jesus redeemed you to give you the full rights of sons. Now, you have to know your Old Testament a little bit to know what that means, right? If you remember that. What did it mean to be the firstborn son? It meant that you got a double portion of the inheritance. Um, this is why it was such a big deal for example, like when Jacob and Esau are fighting over the birthright um, and, uh, and the inheritance, right? Why, why Esau was so upset when Jacob tricked his father into giving it to him because it mattered, right? And so here it is, is we're pulling a little bit of that Old Testament language in now and applying it to, to, to believers, to the people of God, um, that Jesus has given to you the right to be known as sons of God. What does that mean? It means that through faith in Jesus, you stand to inherit all of God's gifts, right? Um, so some translations will say something like, to, you know, that we might receive the full rights of being God's children. Well, okay, but that's not the point. That's not what it's talking about, right? It's, it's actually talking about in the Old Testament, being that firstborn son, that was a big deal. And, and, and this is why God to know that this is the status and the standing that we have in his presence through faith in Jesus, right? Um, Mark chapter 10, hey, Phil. Um, Mark chapter 10 says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Um, Jesus came, and this is, this is kind of an amazing thing to think about, right? Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. Um, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to lay down his life. Um, and, and we can say God, God cannot die. God is incapable of dying. And yet in the person of Jesus Christ, who is true God, Jesus dies, right? So he takes on human flesh for that very reason, um, to lay down his life. So here's our answer. Um, why did Jesus need to be true man? We're top of page 30, Phil. Um, Jesus needed to be true man so that he could be born or live under God's law and so that he could die as the ransom price that paid for our sins. Okay, so that's your answer for the top of page 30. Um, so we need Jesus to be true man, right? It's not just a nice thing, right? Um, kind of a um, a pleasant happenstance. No, this is, this is a necessary thing. This is why we need Jesus to be true man, um, to accomplish this very thing. Um, why did Jesus also then need to be true God? This is also necessary. Hebrews chapter four says, um, 
Jesus has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. If Jesus is only true man and not true God, um, A, then Jesus is born in a natural way with a mom and a dad. And guess what Jesus now is born with? Original sin, inherited sin, right? That goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. We talked about that back in lesson three, I think, um, or lesson four. Um, and, and so Jesus is born in this supernatural way. We'll talk about that in our next lesson. Um, but if Jesus is just true man, then what chance does he have to keep God's law perfectly? None, right? Um, um, he needs to be divine. He needs to be true God. Psalm 49, no man can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for him. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough that he should live on forever and not see decay. Um, so, so let's imagine again, if Jesus is just a, 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 a really good man, let's say he's even a perfect man. He managed somehow as man, as a guy, to live a perfect life without sin. Who then could he give that life over for as a payment to ransom or redeem them? Who could give it over for? He's lived one perfect life. He could use it to redeem one more life, right? He could save one person. I mean, you, you kind of envision, not that we do this in our judicial system, at least I hope we don't. Ryan's going to work to make sure we don't do that. Um, you know, if, if, if uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, share, I'm in jail and I'm sharing a cell with a guy, I can't tell the warden, look, just let this guy go free and I'll serve out his sentence too. Um, you know, the, the warden, the judge, anybody with a right mind would say, you got your own sentence, you need to live out, right? Um, you, you, you have nothing to offer because you yourself are guilty, right? Um, but even if someone were to come in and say, look, I have a perfect record. Um, I've never committed a crime. I've never broken a law. I'm willing to come in and serve Noah's sentence. Again, not that we do that. But, but logically, ideologically, I guess you could say, all right, right, if you're willing to serve someone's sentence and you have no crimes that you yourself need to pay, you can come and pay and he, and he will go. But you don't get to set the whole jail free because of one perfect life. So th this, this is what Psalm 49 is saying, right? Um, the, the, the cost to redeem someone's life is costly. Um, no payment that I could give, that you could give, would ever be enough. But who could make that payment that would be enough to set the world free from its sin? Only God. And so if Jesus is going to come and be the world's savior from sin, guess who he also has to be? God, right? Okay. Lastly, Hebrews chapter 2. Since the children have flesh and blood, he, talking about Jesus, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Free those who live all their, who, who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. I think that's such a powerful passage because this is how really anybody outside of those who, who know and believe in Jesus Christ live. Maybe you even have for a while, maybe you even do a little bit right now, right? Um, to be held in slavery by the fear of death. And so why do we need Jesus to be true God according to this passage? Because we need his death to be powerful enough to actually accomplish something. 
And what does the death of Jesus Christ accomplish? He destroys the power of the one who holds the keys of death. He holds the power of death, one who, who helped insert sin and death into this world. That is the devil. And so you think back to that, the previous lesson that we looked at, right, um, where, where God makes that promise to, to the serpent. Um, someone is coming who will crush your head, right? And here it is. Here it is, right? This is Jesus. So we need, again, not just a really good guy to die. We need someone whose death is actually going to make a difference, right? Um, so we need Jesus to also be true God. So here's our answer for that one. Jesus needed to be true God because another man would not be able to live a life without sin, number one. He also needed to be true God because no man by himself could successfully pay the price to ransom us from sin. So again, that's just kind of like skimming the surface just to, you know, show you the importance of this reality, right? There are no accidental doctrines in the Christian faith. There are no, um, you know, accidental um, um, teachings um, in scripture where it's kind of like, oh, well, you know, if that hadn't happened, no big deal, right? Um, these things happen because God wants them to happen. God mandates and ordains them to happen. So, so it is with the two natures of Jesus. It's necessary for our salvation, um, and thank God that Jesus carries it out. Um, the bottom of the page is kind of, it, it's a very, you know, elementary way to break it down, but it just kind of gives you a picture, right? So we're starting here with the one true triune God. Who is that? It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when we talk about the Son now, we're talking about he who is both true God and true man. Um, all right. Um, there's a, yeah, Mitzi. True God. The question Mitzi asked is, so Jesus is true God and true man, but what was Jesus before he was incarnate? And that is true God. So I, somebody has actually, and I need to get a, I need to get a, a whiteboard up here, like a little portable one, so I can draw on it. Um, I'm, a, I'm a wonderful artist. Um, not really, but <laughs> um, I, so a lot of people, so I drew that on the bottom of my page. And I tried to, not that you're going to be able to see it, but I'll explain it. But what I, what I basically did is you've got, the problem with it is it, it, it makes it seem like there's a starting point for God where, when there isn't, right? But I, I'm just trying to illustrate. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has always been, right? Always existed. God is, is eternal. He's infinite, without beginning, without end. Um, and all three of them throughout all of forever have existed. But there's a time now, right, when the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born of the law, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Um, you, you think of uh, uh, Luke chapter 2, we're going to read that in our, in our next lesson, right? This historical context that Luke gives at the beginning of Luke chapter 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree. Quirinius was governor of Syria. This was the first census. This is history right? At that point in time, when Jesus is conceived, he is now, he remains true God, that does not change. But there is now a point in history when he takes on human flesh. Um, and the, um, 
the, uh, the Athanasian Creed probably does as good a job um, of explaining that as, as anything, especially succinctly, um, as, as anything else that's ever been written. Um, that, that God um, assumes the humanity into his deity. Um, and what, is, what, is, what does that mean? I don't know, right? All I know is Jesus is true God and true man, right? Both of those are true. Um, and, and now, it just as important. So what is Jesus right now? He still is true God and true man, right? He does not set that humanity aside. Um, this is why the, the angel says, right, when Jesus ascends into heaven, he's going to come back in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. Um, Jesus is still and will forever be true God and true man. He's really bodily, Absolutely bodily, right? Um, and think about how important that is for us, right? As bodily creatures to have a bodily God, right? Um, to know that God doesn't just care about us spiritually, that he doesn't just redeem us spiritually, that God cares about us physically, that he redeems us bodily. Um, we'll get into this in our, in our next lesson, too, this idea that when Jesus rises from the dead, it's not just so that we can go, wow, cool, Jesus rose from the dead. Oh, that's so awesome. I wonder what that might, might, might be like. Jesus says, because I live, you too will live. The whole point in Jesus rising from the dead is to say, the day will come on that last day when you too will rise. A bodily resurrection. We confess this in the creed every Sunday right? Um, the, that, that we're not just going to rise as spiritual beings, um, but that there will be a resurrection of the body, life everlasting, amen. That's how the creed ends, right? Um, and, and so just as important as it is for us, this bodily resurrection, so it is for Jesus. Um, and so Jesus is forever, from that moment of his conception, Jesus is forever true God and true man. Yeah? A smile. I'll take a smile. <laughs> All right. It's a great question. Um, summary, bottom of page 31. Uh, the top of, of page 30 is just a, a portion from the small catechism uh, on the, the second portion of the Apostles' Creed, what, what Christians for almost two millennia now have confessed about, about Jesus Christ. Um, throughout uh, Old Testament history, summary below that, God continued to promise a Savior who would rescue us from the sinful condition that Adam and Eve's sin brought into the world. While the Old Testament tells us much about the history of the ancient people of Israel, its primary purpose is to point us forward to the coming Savior. The New Testament reveals that Jesus Christ is the Savior whom God had promised to send since the fall into sin. The Bible shows us that Jesus Christ is both true God and true man in one person. The Son of God was born a human being through the miracle of the virgin birth. Again, we're going to talk about that in our next lesson. So that he could be fully God and fully human. Jesus' divine and human natures were both necessary in order for him to win our salvation and forgiveness. The Bible also pictures uh, Jesus' work in the terms of three offices, prophet, priest, and king. As our prophet, Jesus came to proclaim the good news that he is our Savior. As our priest, he sacrificed himself to atone for our sins 
and continues to intercede for us before his father. As our king, Jesus defeated our spiritual enemies of sin, death, Satan, and hell. And now he rules in our hearts by faith. All right. Um, that's it for the end of lesson five. What questions do you have? I'll let you look at everything else. We're going we're gonna to move on to lesson six. Unless you got any questions. All right. Lesson six. Now we, we kind of looked in lesson five at the, the prophecies of Jesus, right? The pointing ahead from the Old Testament. This is who Jesus will be. This is what he'll come to do. This is where he will be born. This is will be born. This is how he will be born. All those kinds of things. Now we are going to actually get into the birth, life, death, ministry, passion, resurrection, ascension of Jesus. All right. And we're going to do that using these terms. Um, we're going to, we're going to talk about God's grace in Jesus humiliation and his exaltation. And we'll talk more about what that means. Um, but here's why just a little bit of an intro, what I want to start with. Can you think of a time in your life when you endured something uncomfortable or sacrifice some of the perks of life for a specific reason? I think we probably all can. The question is, what leads people to put up with a less than comfortable situation? Why do people do that? For gratification? Okay, how so? Yeah, good. Okay. Yeah. Um, you, you've seen those uh, videos where they put like two kids down and they say like, we'll give you a Hershey kiss now, but if you wait five minutes and don't eat it, right, we'll give you a whole bag of candy when we come back. Like none of the kids make it, right? I mean, because there isn't that kind of awareness and understanding of that. But as adults, we do that all the time. You're right, right? Um, you know, I'll... I'll, I'll diet for three months because I know I got this trip to Mexico or something and, you know, uh, whatever it might be, I'll, I'll, I'll put this off. I'll sacrifice some of the perks of life so that that will be more enjoyable. Good. That's a good example. You don't have to think of that. What, why else? Okay. Right. Um, you're in love with maybe, you know, someone you're hoping to be your spouse or somebody who is your spouse or probably more times than not. I think you oftentimes see it with parents and their kids, Right. Um, you make sacrifices for your kids all the time. Um, I, I don't know how many episodes of Bluey I've watched. Um, I've watched all of them. There's only two seasons. I've watched every single episode probably 15 times. Why do I do that? Because it makes my kids happy, right? So you sacrifice that for people you love. Good. Um, I think another one might be because you're, you know, you're, you're trying to um, maybe get ahead, right? You think about your education, you think about, uh, you know, working toward a career or a job, right? Sleepless nights, studying long hours, the money that you invested in education. Why do you do all of those things? Um, because in the end, right, there's, there's going to be a payout, hopefully, for it, with a better career and a better life, whatever it might be. Here's the point. Um, lesson six continues uh, our study of Jesus Christ, the God-man and our Savior. Although he was true God, Jesus allowed himself to experience and endure life as a humble human being. He set aside the perks of heaven and lived among us. He subjected himself to this, not because he wanted to find out what it was like to be one of us, but because he was determined to rescue us from this sinful 
existence. And so here is our lesson goal. It really is just simply to walk through the various stages that, again, we confess in the Apostles' Creed. Um, you, you take a look at that, and you've got kind of these two stages, Jesus' humiliation and his exaltation. And you kind of envision every step of his humiliation is sort of like one step kind of, you know, going down a set of stairs, right? Jesus is sinking himself lower and lower and lower. Yes, to be conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, that's a new low for Jesus, right? But it's going to get worse. Um, he's going to suffer. He's going to be crucified. He's going to die. He's going to be buried, right? But then we're going to also go through uh, Jesus, his exaltation kind of this, this progressive stepping back up again, so to speak, right? He descended into hell, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, sits at God's right hand, and will return to judge the living and the dead. Um, and so each of those are phrases that we confess in the Apostles' Creed, and that's kind of what we're going to use as our outline to walk through um, the life and ministry of Jesus. And where do we get those words, the humiliation and exaltation of Jesus? If you look in your notes, we get them from Philippians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul uses those words to describe kind of these two stages of Jesus' life. He says this in Philippians 2, verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. We'll say that Jesus' humiliation points to the time in our Lord's life from his conception and birth to his death and burial. Okay. Um, and, and really all of the, the stages and experiences in between. Now, when you and I hear the word humiliation, right, you, maybe you picture somebody like walking out of the bathroom with toilet paper stuck in their shoe. You're like, oh, I was so humiliated. We avoid it if we can, right? I don't want to be humiliated, right? Very few of us are confident enough to say, I don't care. I'll do it. I'll humiliate myself, right? Unless we're in like a group of friends and people that we know. But, but notice that, that Jesus is active in this. It's not just that, like, Jesus was humiliated because he didn't have the ability to avoid it. Because he didn't know the toilet paper was stuck to his sandal. No. Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The most shameful and humiliating death that man has ever invented. Um, Jesus willingly does this for you. Okay, but following his death and burial, Jesus is, and now we pick up back in Philippians chapter two, God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' exaltation includes the time of his life after his sufferings and death, his descent into hell, his resurrection from the dead. And we're going to talk about the descent into hell. I think a lot of people, when they, when they hear that in the creed or just that phrase, they tend to think about Jesus descending into hell in order to suffer. That's not what we're talking about. Okay, we'll, we'll talk more about that. Uh, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven, his return at the end of time, our goal in this lesson is to see how these events took place in Jesus' own life and to understand their purpose for us. We will especially focus on the events surrounding Jesus' birth, death, and his resurrection, and we'll learn the significance that each of these has for our faith. All right? So if you got a Bible there um, uh, uh, in the, the pew and you want to look up with me, 
um, or you can pull it up on your phone, or you can just listen along too. Um, we're going to begin by looking at Jesus' birth. And to do that, we're going to read a couple of sections here from Luke's gospel. Um, we're going to start with Luke chapter 1. Verses 26 through 56. Um, this story from Luke's gospel shows us how God sent a divine messenger to Mary, Jesus' mother, who announced that she would give birth to the Savior. Does anybody want to read? I, I always like to ask if people like reading out loud. I, I would love to hear you read. If you don't, I have no problem. Um, this is kind of what I've been asked to do, so I'm willing to read. But if you'd like to read, let me know. Um, we'll have a couple chances to do that in this lesson. And you notice this is a longer lesson. I know it's longer. It used to actually be two lessons. Um, so um, I've, I've kind of combined it into one, shortened it a little bit, even though the lesson itself now is, is longer. All right, uh, verse 26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, the town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked uh, the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so that the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And the angel left her. And that's just the only section that we're going to read. Um, the, the notes that I have there, I'm, I'm not going to read through all of these. It's a longer lesson. But the one that I really want to point out to you is um, the second bullet point there. Um, the one that begins, Mary knew that this announcement. Um, and the reason that I, I, I bring this up um, is because there are some people who say, well, the Greek word and the Hebrew word, so Hebrew Old Testament, Greek New Testament, the original language of the Bible, um, some people will say, well, the word that we have translated virgin is a word that can just most commonly means young woman or a woman who is not married. And so the accusation is lobbied against Christians that we invented um, the, the virgin birth, um, that we, we took this very, you know, kind of simple, very innocent story about this young woman giving birth to this child, and we turned her into a virgin and blew it up into a miracle, um, and, and it set off this whole chain of events that now leads to the Christian faith. Now, a couple things. Number one, yes, the, the, the Hebrew word, um, can be translated, and the Greek word um, that is translated virgin here, both of those can be translated young woman or a woman who is not married. But here's the problem. When it comes to 
uh, translating and interpreting the Bible, the number one rule, and, and, and I don't care really what your background is, what branch of Christianity you are, um, I think this is a pretty universal rule, and if it isn't, it should be. The very first rule in translating and interpreting the Bible is you have to let the context determine the way a word is used. Now, we talked about this a little bit back in our account of creation, right? Where the word day is used. There was evening and there was morning, day one, day two. Um, and the question is raised, well, you take that word day literally, but the word day could mean how long was it? How long did creation take? And we say, well, we, we take it to be 24 hours because that's how long a day is. Um, and, and people will say, yeah, but you can use the word day to mean anything. And the example I use is when I get home from work, I, I say to my wife, man, I had a long day at work today. She doesn't assume that I mean 24 hours, but why? Because she lets the context determine the way I use the word. Um, and so when it comes to creation, when God says there's a period of darkness, evening, and a period of light, and those two things combined make day one, well, that sure seems to fit what you and I know as a 24-hour period. There's really no reason for us to try and get, you know, um, I don't want to say crazy, but, but get, uh, you know, interesting and try, what does Jesus really mean here? It, it's a day. It's a day. It's 24 hours. Not only that, but the word day is never used in the Bible to mean anything other than a 24-hour period, right? So that would be a foreign way to use it. Same thing here with the, the word that is translated virgin. If you remember the context in Isaiah chapter seven, um, this is the Lord inviting the, the king um, that he's talking to, to demand from God a sign, which doesn't happen very often in the Bible. And the king tries to, to be all nice and proper. He says, oh, no, no, God, I'm never gonna demand a sign from you. And God says, no, this is gonna be a sign to you. Um, the virgin will be with child and, 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 and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. Now, virgin for young woman, and tell me what kind of a sign that would be. The young woman, this will be the sign. This is how you will know. This will be the unmistakable sign that God is at work here. A young woman will give birth to a son, and she's going to name him Emmanuel okay, that's happened thousands of times throughout human history. That's not a very good sign, God. Um, and, and, and so not only that, but the context of Mary's response, when the angel says, you're going to give birth to a son, and Mary says, the way it's translated here is, uh, what, verse 34, how will this be since I am a virgin? Well, the Greek there actually says, how will this be since I have never known a man. Now, you have to know a little bit Bible context here. Um, remember, Mary is engaged. She knows men, meaning she's aware of their existence. She even has close relationships with a lot of them. I'm assuming she had a father at some point um, and maybe even had siblings. It, it doesn't mean she didn't know any guys. It, it didn't mean that she wasn't on the dating scene. No, this is a biblical way of describing sex, to know someone deeply, intimately. 
the, the deepest and most intimate way that one human being can know another, right, through a sexual relationship. And so that's the way the Bible describes it. So what is Mary admitting? She's admitting, how, how can this be? I've never had sex. She's admitting she's a virgin, right? So I bring all of this up just because, you know, and I'll do this from time to time in some of these. of what as Christians we call apologetics um, thinking through the Bible um, you know and we'll watch a little video when we get into our lesson on the Bible one of the things as Christians that we can say is you know people are always worried you know that the further away we get from antiquity the more modern we get as a civilization the less people need religion people in the dark ages of course they needed religion they needed something to take their minds off of how horrible their existence was. They needed to have a higher hope, a higher being. But look around us. We have no wants. We have no needs. We have everything at the, at the, the touch of a finger, right? And so the more and more this goes on, right, the more and more we learn, the more and more we progress, the more science evolves, the more and more it's going to disprove God. And the reality of that is it's the exact opposite. Um, archaeology is one of the Christians' greatest allies. The more and more they dig in, in, in the Middle East, the more and more the Bible is proven true. Um, and so none of these things um, are, are, are true, that, that people try and lobby against this. And, and so when I, when I get these examples where, you know, I read, um, you, know, um, you know, adversaries of the Bible or people try and attack Christians, and they, they, they bring challenges. And, you know, if somebody brought that challenge to you, would you be able to answer? They say, you know what? Um, the, the word there, virgin, really just means young woman. What would you say, right? Would you be able to, to respond to it? I think every now and then there's a couple of good points where we just have to arm ourselves as Christians to say, no, being a Christian does not make me an idiot, right? It actually makes me very educated. It makes me very informed. They're very enlightened. Um, uh, yeah, let's see. Okay. Yeah. They could. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, the, the idea of, and, and I used to have this section in here, um, but, but we're not going to go through it tonight when, when Joseph, right. sees the, he, Joseph is going to leave Mary because eventually what, what does Joseph realize? I have not slept with this woman, um, and yet she's very clearly pregnant. So um, a very logical deduction in that situation is Mary has been unfaithful. And yet here is how amazingly awesome and how much of a stand-up guy Joseph is. What does Joseph decide to do? He decides to divorce her quietly and leave in the middle of the night. Well, what impression is that going to give people? The impression would have been um, Mary was pregnant. Joseph had every right to say, I didn't do it. And then we all stoned Mary to death for being an adulteress, right? Joseph now says, instead of that, I'm just going to split. I'm going to leave my home. I'm going to leave my relatives. I'm going to leave my, everything that I know. I'm going to divorce her quietly and leave. What impression is that now going to give 
right? Now it's going to look like Joseph knocked her up and then abandoned his responsibilities. He was willing to take that on himself, right? Um, Joseph, it just one of the most amazingly humble, awesome men in scripture that we know hardly anything about, right? Other than he's this, the, the, the earthly father of Jesus, which is a pretty big deal. You'd think we'd know more about him, but we don't. But that in and of itself is just amazing. Um, <clears throat> so I, I just, like I said, I, I, I share that one with their, um, that, that bullet point, just to kind of give you, you know, if that ever comes up or you ever read that, um, You've got a response to it. Um, any, any questions on that before we turn to Luke chapter 2? We get into the actual account of Jesus' birth. Got about 10 minutes left, so I think we can get through this. All right. Um, Luke chapter 2. Here's kind of the more full and complete account. Um, again, Matthew chapter 1 with Joseph. There's a little, little account of it, but this is the full one. Um, if you grew up in a Christian church as a kid, maybe you even had to memorize it. Um, Here's what Luke writes. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. Um, now, again, just stop and think about that for a second. <clears throat> when people want to talk about the Bible as a fairy tale, or the Bible as this kind of, you know, it's a book of morals. It's not, it's not um, really anything that is to be taken too literally. Um, you don't get any more historical than that, right? Um, this, this would have been the perfect place for the Bible to have a story that began um, once upon a time in a land far away. But it doesn't. It gives you a historical name and a historical time and a historical place into which the son of God is born. Okay. So Joseph went also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Um, I, I have to point this out like almost every Christmas now. I think the, the story, given our current climate and context and culture, um, a lot of people are drawn to the Christmas story because of those verses I just read. You got this young unmarried couple far away from home no one welcomes them. Everyone shuns them. Um, they're homeless. They're friendless. They're penniless. They're familyless. Um, and yet, right, they, they, they persevere. It's like this is the perfect story of like, you know, a family pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. And that's the nostalgia that people are drawn to. Like not the fact that, 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 that the God of heaven and earth who created you and me and all things is coming in bodily flesh. That's not the point. No, it's that this young, poor Jewish family overcame all the odds. And it's like, no, right? But it does say something about the way that Jesus will live throughout his life. This, this humble beginning that Jesus endures is not just a, a rags to riches story. It's a rags to the cross story, right? It goes from lowly to lower. 
It goes from bad to worse. But this is what Jesus comes to do. This is his humiliation. Okay. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. And there's another example, a sign. What kind of sign would it have been if it would have been, you will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in the Four Seasons room 406? Um, if they had been in a house, if they had found a room in the inn, right, there's no sign there. You don't typically find newborn babies, though, in feeding troughs for animals. That's unusual. That's a sign, right? This is why God is, the things that God is giving here as signs, these are unmistakable things that don't happen, right? Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. Um, if those words sound familiar, it's because we sing them almost every Sunday. This is the, the words of the Gloria in Excelsis, right? After the confession and absolution that we do, this is the song of praise that we sing back to God. Um, glory to God in the highest. Here the angels are singing it because they know that God has come in the flesh to accomplish the world's salvation. On Sunday morning, we sing it because we know God has just given us that very forgiveness. He has given us that very salvation in the words and the promise of the absolution. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherd said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. All right. Um, just a couple of pictures that I'm going to share with you. Um, I had the privilege, I hope to go back again someday. Um, it's been, uh, what, uh, 13 years now. I'm trying to convince my wife to come with me. Um, I was privileged my, my last year in graduate school to uh, spend two weeks in the Holy Land. If you've ever been there, if you've ever had, ever have the chance to go, I highly recommend it. So I just want to share with you some pictures that are going to kind of um, fit in with the stories, right? The accounts of Jesus' life that we're reading about. Um, this is a cave um, that is uh, on the outskirts of the city of Bethlehem. And what's interesting about it is, I think a lot of times we all have manger scenes probably, or you've seen manger scenes, right, around Christmas time. And a lot of them are made of wood, and the manger is made of wood and all of that stuff. Probably not the case. Right? Number one, um, to build that cost money. And you're probably not going to spend that kind of money to, to put a roof over your animals' heads when you've got mountains and caves and things like that natural all around you. Number two, probably not if you've ever been to a farm, you're not going to put uh, your animals' food into a wood feeding trough. Why? Okay. Well, yeah, and why would they get splinters in their mouth? Because they'll eat it, 
right? I mean, just if you've ever seen goats or, or sheep or cows, I mean, you put food in front, of, I don't care what you put it in, it better be something sturdy or they're going to eat it. Um, and so the same thing here, the manger was probably something that also was carved out of, out of stone, right? Um, and so this is just a, a little cave that's there. I'm not saying that this is where Jesus was born. I'm not saying that this is the cave. Um, but I think it's more than likely that it was probably this scene than it was like a wood barn or something. Um, so there's a little chapel inside of it, which is kind of cool. So we got to read the Christmas story and have a little worship service there. What I think is really fascinating about that cave is you, you stand on the, 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 the edge of it. And when you look out from it, this is what you see. The shepherd's field. It's just grazing field as far as the eye can see. Um, pretty much all the way up into like Jerusalem, which is six, seven miles away. Um, and this is what you're looking at, right? Um, and so you, you can't quite make it out, but in all there, this is just grazing pasture for sheep. And it still is called the shepherd's field um, and has been for a long, long time. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so that is Bethlehem. I don't have a lot of pictures of Bethlehem. Um, just because um, Bethlehem is a, a Palestinian territory. So to get into it is a little more work. And the, the tour guide that we had um, wasn't very interested in telling the story of the birth of Jesus. <laughs> so you can kind of tell. Um, but anyway, it was uh, just interesting, I think, to kind of see. And so much of the stuff there, this is the only knock, I would say, if you tour the Holy Lands, so much of it is commercialized. It just really kind of ruins it. Um, and so, you know, that uh, seeing that cave and seeing the shepherd's field was was good for me. That was just awesome. But then they take you inside the church and they take you down stairs into this little area. And there's this gold star with a little glass piece on the floor. Um, and this is the place where Jesus was born. And it's like, OK, all right, time to go. <laughs> um, so. Anyway, uh, but I'll have more pictures as we kind of go throughout the life of Jesus, um, some that I think are really um, The one thing I, I want to do is I, I still want to go through Jesus' ministry. That, that's the next section. Um, it's not very long. Um, this is kind of the general map. So when you think of, you know, if you've, if you've seen a map of, of Israel, um, or have one in your Bible or something like that. I, I think, you know, um, there's really three general areas that you should have in mind. And I've got them underlined. They're there in your notes and they're here up on the screen. From top to bottom, you see the territories of Galilee, Samaria, um, and then Judea. And of course, Galilee is where Jesus conducts the vast majority of his ministry, right? So you see the Sea of Galilee. Um, you've got Capernaum kind of up on the northwest uh, shore. That sort of became Jesus adopted home. Um, this was Peter's home, um, uh, his mother-in-law's home. Um, you've got uh, Nazareth, Cana, uh, below Galilee. Cana is where Jesus performed his first miracle, right? Um, so this is, um, this is uh, Jesus turning water into wine. Nazareth, obviously his hometown. Nain, where Jesus raised the widow's son. We moved out into Samaria. This is, of course, where the Samaritans were. Right? This is where you avoided them if you were a good, full-blooded Jew. Right, So you would walk down, if you were coming from Galilee down to Judea, you would walk all the way around to the Decapolis and around so that you didn't get any of the Samaritan dust on your sandals. Um, but then you get down into Judea, and there you see just kind of upper right 
of Judea, there's Jerusalem, right? Um, and then down below Jerusalem, there you see Bethlehem, okay? And Bethany, that's where Mary and Martha lived. Um, and that little body of water on the right, does anybody know that? What is that? The Dead Sea, right? Um, I got to float in that. That was pretty cool. Um, and then, of course, the Jordan River, right? That connects the two. Um, where are you at? Um, not, not real. I mean, not a big one. You know, um, I mean, it still kind of winds through the wilderness. Um, so, yeah. Um, again, there's there's a there's a very commercialized spot where everybody's. This is where Jesus was baptized, and it's right at the southern tip of the Sea of Galilee, which we know a hundred percent sure this is not where Jesus was baptized. Um, but it's it's crazy because they have they're like race they're like racing lanes. So you get to the Jordan River and there's like, there's lanes with handrails, like 10 down to one. And then you can get in lane 10 and then you can get baptized in the Jordan River. You're like, next up, lane number nine. Like it's, it just, like I said, it's so commercialized. But there's an area, if you keep going south, if you keep going south, and again, I'm not saying this is it, but it's probably a more plausible area. It's just in the middle of the sticks. Um, but there's a, like an alternate site, less commercialized um, area that we went to. Um, it doesn't have a big gift shop and stuff like that. Um, no racing lanes. Um, so, but um, yeah, it, so the more you kind of follow it south, remember the closer you get to the Dead Sea, the closer you get to Jerusalem. I mean, it is desolate. Um, and I'll show you pictures of the Judean wilderness, like where John the Baptist did his ministry, where Jesus was tempted. Um, you know, where he fasted for you. you, you look out into this, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's Central Valley on the steroids, um, or Central Coast, I mean, it's just desolate, um, so that's kind of what it winds through, and there's just mountains kind of all over, um, but northern Israel, northern Israel, Galilee is very green, it's very lush, um, it's, it, it actually was really easy for me, having lived in Utah for about 10 years, because it reminds me a lot of Utah, Northern Utah, very green, very mountainous, you know, um, that's where all the ski hills and everything are. You go to Southern Utah, that's like Sedona, that's Red Rock, that's desert, that's, you know, so Northern and Southern, just totally different. Um, and that's the same way with Israel. Um, the area around Jerusalem, around the Dead Sea, um, um, yeah, not, not much there, so. A couple of pictures just to show you. Um, this is when we got to take a boat ride out on the Sea of Galilee. Um, the water was really, really low. Um, it was kind of right at the beginning of their, their rainy season. We went like early, early kind of January. Um, so normally the water kind of is all the way up to there, but that just kind of gives you a picture of it. This is us walking out on our boat. This is kind of looking back at basically Capernaum. That's kind of where we stay, kind of on that northwestern shore. Um, this is the boat that we, we got to ride. Um, and you really can't make it out, but the name of it was Noah. So I felt really good about that. Um, and uh, yeah, we got to just sail around on the Sea of Galilee. And I tell people there's, when you go to the Holy Land, there's three different kinds of places, right? There's a kind of place where you look at it and go, mm, yeah, I know the Bible. This is not where it happened. 
but the Roman Catholic Church got a piece of property and built a chapel and said, this is what happened here. Everybody come here, something like that. Um, the second one is it makes sense. It fits. It very well could be, but we don't know for sure, right? Then there are, and these are the few ones, then there are other places where you're like, yeah, this is where it was. This is where it happened, right? Um, and it's strange to think about that, but the Sea of Galilee is it, right? It's one of them. It hasn't moved, right? Um, this is the water that Jesus walked on. This is where the miraculous catch of fish took place. This is where he calmed the storm, right? So to be out on those waters was, was a pretty cool thing. Um, this is up on what, what is called the Mount of Olives. Again, this is another one of those areas where, you know, historically people say this is where Jesus fed the 5,000, the Sermon on the Mount. This is where all of this took. Um, and uh, what's interesting is, I think a lot of times when you see artwork depicted, when Jesus is preaching, he's always standing up on a rock and people are all below him, right? That makes great art because it elevates Jesus so you can see him. But the reality of it is there's no way that that's how Jesus talked. Why? Because if you're standing up above people, it's the same reason why I preach from here and not from the balcony. Because what happens? Well, sound travels up, right? Um, and so if Jesus is standing up on a rock and he's got 5,000, 20,000 people below, no one's going to hear a word past the first two rows, right? But I think more than likely, and this is kind of interesting, so our tour guide who was with us, and our tour guide in, in Israel was much better. He was amazing. He walked down, you just kind of see this wall here. He walked down this path almost all the way down to the Sea of Galilee, which you can see how far that is, probably five, 600 yards, easy. Um, and he just started talking to us like this in a normal voice. And with the water behind and the natural amphitheater of the, the, the slope, we could hear him crystal clear. Um, so it's just kind of amazing, again, to think about that, right? Um, so could this have been the place where Jesus did that? Could have been. It fits. It makes sense. Not saying that it was. Um, but you just kind of need to see that, that layout. Those are all banana trees, by the way. Um, I have one of those. This is the Judean wilderness. Um, so, uh, you know, like last Sunday, for example, the, the sermon we had was on the Good Samaritan and the, the, the man who's traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, right? This is what he had to walk through. Um, this is where he had to travel. This is where, where John the Baptist conducted his ministry. This is where Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. I mean, it is as desolate a place as I've ever seen in my life. Um, it just goes on and on and on like that as far as the eye can see. It's beautiful, but it's, that's, it is nothing. Um, why I keep showing pictures of it, I don't know. So anyway, okay, that's where we'll stop tonight. We'll pick up next week. We'll get into the passion of Jesus, okay? Um, we'll talk more about what that is and what that means. All right? Cool. Thanks, everybody. Have a good evening.